Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Carolyn O'Donoghue, the host of Sentimental Garbage, and welcome to the bonus episode of my interview with Marion Keyes, author of Watermelon. If you haven't listened to my chat with Lucy Vine yet, maybe go back and listen now for the full experience. Here's my full conversation with Marion, in which we discuss emotional abuse, the post-feminist landscape of the 1990s, and the famous Walsh sisters. Also, watch out, Marion's Irish, and I found incredibly Irish on this phone call. Thank you so much for talking to us about Watermelon. I know it's... um. You've written so many books since then that it must seem like a bit of a, a fuzzy memory at this point. But I suppose it was your debut and that must have a really special yeah. place in your heart, you know? Yeah, I mean, like writing that book was the most fun I have had doing anything ever in my entire life. Um, and none of the books, you know, I've never enjoyed any of them as much as I enjoyed writing that one. And why was that, do you think? Because I had a clue what I was doing. and And I really mean that. Like, I just thought... You could write anything when you wrote a book. Anything that came into my head, I just threw it in. And I had no idea of like, maybe that's not appropriate. Maybe that doesn't belong here or whatever. Like, I just, I had no idea of rules. And it was just, it was a very joyous time. You know, I had no idea really how lucky I was with all of it. I had a very similar experience um, when I started writing my book. I just sort of, I suddenly one day, I'd been writing and being a journalist and doing all that stuff for so long. And then I suddenly got this, like strike of inspiration and then I was like look I have I've got no wedding to plan for I got no babies uh, maybe this could be this like like tiny yeah. little moment in my life where I can just do something selfishly and only for myself and yes did you have a similar kind of moment like that completely like I wrote that book for myself and I just enjoyed every second and I didn't agonize about plots I didn't agonize about characterization like I mean you know I probably think the subsequent books I've written have been better crafted and everything. But Watermelon was just me doing it for me. And it was just such a pleasure. I'd love to know how you arrived at the story of Claire and the story of the Walsh sisters in general. Oh, my God. OK, this is a very odd one, right? I had never intended to write a novel, but I got myself into a situation where I had sent my short stories off to a publisher and I said I'd started a novel and I hadn't. And I really thought I never would because I just I had no ideas. And they wrote back and they said, send us what you have. And, you know, panic is a great motivator, really. And I think because I had read so many books and I'd read so many romances and stuff like that, that I had kind of the blueprint for some sort of love story in my head. So I don't know where the the storyline came from, you know, where, where Claire's just had her baby and, and her husband has left her. But Claire was a woman who was very, her life was very similar to mine. And you see, at the time, um, this was in the early 90s, um, I was a, 
I was told I was a post-feminist and I was told that, you know, feminism, there was no need for it anymore um, and that my life was fantastic and that, like, I had every opportunity that a man had and that sexually we were equal and that everything was magnificent. But I knew that my life was nothing like that and I couldn't see it happening to any of the women around me. So, and none of that was reflected in popular fiction. So I decided I was going to write about a woman like me, you know, a woman who had car crash relationships and, you know, didn't have enough money and, you know, kind of drank a lot, you know, more than she should have and cared an awful lot about shoes and handbags and and hair products. And, you know, that was Claire who was, you know, somebody like me and the women I knew and that, you know, there just wasn't any, any evidence of her in magazines or novels. So, and then I suppose the idea of the Walsh sisters, um, I come from a family of five um, and they're not all girls. Um, it's two two boys and, and three girls. But I liked, I thought every family had five people in it, um, clearly. Um, and they say every first novel is autobiographical. So I, I, you know, I wasn't planning anything past the first book, but I'm just really glad that there there were five and um, and that they were all women. So, but most of it was an accident. Um, I suppose the only thing w- that wasn't an accident was deciding to write Claire as somebody I recognised and somebody I knew. But the rest was all kind of plucked from the universe, I suppose. What's so interesting, what you just said about um, at that point... Uh, being a post-feminist. And I think there was this bit, a bit of a drought for feminism in the 90s, wasn't there, where everyone there was, was told that we all had, we all have loads of money now, aren't we all doing great the same altogether? Yeah. You've got money and you've got condoms, what more do you want? Um, exactly. Yeah, but there was such a disconnect between what we were told and how we were living. Um, and also we had been told to be, to distance ourselves from the word feminism. You know, it was presented as a a very unattractive concept and a woman who was a feminist, you know, would never get a boyfriend and would never have nice friends and couldn't wear makeup. Like it was a really, a, a really kind of dangerous trick, you know, that the patriarchy performed on women when the second wave of feminism, you know, came to an end. Like, you know, it was that thing that victors do in every war. You know, they rewrite history. And it was a very lost time for women in the early 90s, I think, because we had nothing to, we had no kind of political or ideological thought or school of thought to kind of ally ourselves with. And we were sort of bouncing around in this world that was not for us. Um, And we had no language to articulate that lostness because that at, at that point the language of the 1970s would have already felt dated like the whole Erica Jong and uh, Jermaine Greer yeah. and everyone like that yeah yes and you know and, and saying it's like the personal is political and the political is personal even though that was still true you know but we were I was really afraid to identify as a feminist and every woman I knew was the same and that's a terrible thing to do to an entire generation of women What's so interesting about that is that when we meet Claire in this sort of post-feminist 90s landscape where everyone has credit cards and condoms, um, is that we, we, we find her in uh, a quite classically Victorian situation where she's a woman who's been abandoned with a child. Yes. 
and, yes, and, and there's a yes. real kind of echoing of sort of a Tess of the D'Urbervilles almost. Do you know what I mean? My God, I haven't even read that. Isn't that gas? <laughs> um, isn't that great that I was, I was echoing <laughs> the classics even though I hadn't read them? This is fantastic. That's Come great on. news altogether, isn't it? <laughs> It is. Um, I'm thrilled. Well, but I just think that like there is because you have this sort of independent woman that has no choice but to fall back on what women do in those scenarios and have done for years and years and years, which is to fall back on the pity of their family. <laughs> family. Yes, yes, yes. I tell you, the, I think the one book that inspired me to write that storyline and it's taken me years to see this. Um, is the book Heartburn by Nora Ephron. Oh, great um, shout. Yeah, I I had loved that book so much. And I I read very chaotically, very shambolically. You know, I kind of read anything that somebody put in front of me. And I had no idea of what I liked or didn't liked, like. But I had read that probably three times. And I loved it because it was so it was so chatty and conversational and and confiding. And, you know, it was a per- first person kind of speaking directly to the reader. And I I owe that book a huge debt of gratitude. And and even though the circumstances aren't the same, in the book, um, Nora Ephron's character is, is pregnant rather than having had the baby. Um, and, and, you know, and she does have, um, you know, she does go and stay with her dad, as far as I remember. So I think definitely I echoed that. Um, and uh, yes, and, and yes, Claire does kind of go home to her family when she feels like there isn't anyone else or she can't go it on her own and there is no one else to help her. What I related to most, the first time I read this and the same with um, Lucy Vine, both of us, it was our first ever chiclet that we'd read and we'd both read it as quite young teenagers and now we were coming back to it as adults and what was so brilliant for me coming back to it was um, uh, having been an adult in London for the last eight years, um, being an Irish woman and that, that, that sort of, those observations that Claire makes about how how James feels about her Irishness and her kind of vaguely savage family. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was that something that you like thought about a lot of the time or like you experienced that, that sort of like, not xenophobia that English people have about Irish people, but certainly a kind of a, oh, you're the kind of the colonial rascals out there in the backwater. Do you know what I mean? Totally, totally, totally. And I mean, a lot of it was affectionate, but you know, it was very much, it wasn't my version of Ireland that a lot of English people seem to respond to. Um, you know, that they thought that we were illogical and wild and, you know, very convivial and chatty and untamed in a way, um, in a way that they weren't. And I mean, a lot of English people seemed to find that very attractive, but there was definitely a, a feeling for me that they didn't see me or Ireland as we actually were or wanted to be seen. I, I definitely felt that very much. And there's a brilliant line where, um, you know, James is coming into the house and he's sort of like, oh, I was expecting boiling oil on you. And I don't know that, that, that brilliant thing where Claire sort of begins to see him for who he is, which is just quite an ignorant, yes. small minded, quite short man. <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to talk a little bit about the creation of James. And actually, in light of what we were saying about sort of post-feminist chat, is that I think it, it would have been very easy to make him 
maybe physically abusive or or just an asshole or like an as in like a really really bombastically villainous character. I think that would have been really easy. But actually, what happens is very insidious and very like I think telling of the both the era that you were writing it in and the one that we have now, where emotional abuse among partners is being talked about. And I think that yes. that's what we would call what James does now at the end of the book is emotional abuse. Yeah, it's so funny because, I mean, it, I didn't have the language back then, but definitely he undermined her. Um, and the things that she thought, you know, were very attractive initially, like where he would try and give her advice, financial advice and stuff like that, um, actually becomes a way of, you know, he finds it distasteful about her that she kind of can't control her money. And... And it becomes a sort of a tussle um, or her her kind of her high spiritedness and her and her party animal tendencies that he no longer celebrated that. He wanted to to suppress that and turn her into a far more biddable person. And it just goes to show that like emotional abuse has always gone on long before we had the words to describe it or to articulate it. And. I mean, I do think it's absolutely wonderful now that that women are far more aware of it and maybe men too, maybe that they're doing it, um, you know, because I think once you give something a title, it just becomes a far more concrete. Um, so, yes, it was emotional abuse, but I had no idea even then that that's what I was doing. I just knew that he he well, didn't love him. her the way he was meant to love her. And for me, that's like, it's such an, a masterful twist, especially for like, for a debut novelist as well. Not, not to be condescending, but having just written my debut, I would have loved to um, really carry that off, which was what you do is that like, we, oh. get, we get this idea of Claire that she's sort of like, she's a bit down on herself. She thinks, you know, she's just come out of this pregnancy. She doesn't feel very attractive. And it comes out over the over her you know conversations with James and with other people that actually she this woman is a bit of a goddess like people love her (laughs) yes um yeah I suppose I mean I liked the fact that I I still like the fact that she is such a robust character you know she's a very she's a positive person you know and she's very much a survivor you know I mean in some ways she's very similar to me but I'm but I'm not that kind of robust resilient type and I suppose I admired that about her and yeah and I wanted to write about a woman who was enough by herself um, and that there wasn't anything particularly remarkable about her, but that her kind of her sense of, you know, that she would survive this was very strong in her. Um, and that was a pleasure to write at a time when I suppose I was without any markers for, you know, for articulating any feminist ideas, that I was still able to create a woman who was quite feministy. Definitely so. And so you, you had Claire and Claire... She's such an oldest sibling as well. And in the in the subsequent Walsh books, she's definitely referred to with a kind of a reverence, I think. I think they're all terrified of her. I think um, so too, yeah. Yeah, you see, and I'm the eldest in my family. And I feel they're all terrified of me as well. And they make fun of me. I'm the one who is kind of a proto-parent. And, you know, I try to kind of control them all and make sure they're on time and stuff like that. Even though they're on their 40s now, you know, I'm 50, <laughs> some of them. Um, so, yeah. Part of me is part of Claire. That part is definitely we share it, where like we are mocked for our controllingness. 
but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay too. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to know how you set about developing the other girls because I, I often find with um, books about uh, big families and there are a lot of them and you can always tell who's actually from a big family and who's not because I, even like in stuff like Little Women which is obviously a, a very dated example there's a very narrowness it's like this one's the nice one this one's the this one and the, it, it tends yeah. to be that someone has like one characteristic but I loved how all the girls they contained multitudes Oh my God, you're so lovely, Caroline. You see, I felt that it was, honest to God, when I was writing Watermelon, I honestly thought it would be the only book I would ever write. I really thought I only had one book in me. And I don't remember giving any huge amount of thought to who the other sisters were. Um, I mean, I suppose Helen is a very strong character. And I suppose Margaret, because she is such a a lickers, really, you know. <laughs> um, but like Anna and Rachel were quite free floating for me. Um, it wasn't until like two books later when I came to write Rachel's Holiday that I realised that she needed her own full personality and that it could be nothing like Claire's. And I suppose the only thing I've done with all five of them is to make sure that they are entirely unique and to try not to, you know, use the same characteristic twice. And I mean, I suppose having said that, like the five siblings that are in my family are all immensely different. And I suppose that showed me that it is possible that five people can come from the same, you know, the same set of genes and the same upbringing, but still end up you know, unique and and oh, totally. My older brother is yeah. really into Putin, so there's no, there's no. Jesus Christ, <laughs> you're not serious. Uh, yeah, I think he right. just okay. has a weird respect for him. It's very strange, but yeah, to your point, yeah. to your point, it's like there's no way of like it's so weird how like people who you relate to more than anyone else on earth on earth yes. are just these absolute strangers in so, in so many ways in some ways yes exactly so yeah you're right i suppose in that having grown up in a very close but diverse family i knew that siblings even five women from the one house would all be different and also that it was important that they should be that it would be crappy as a reader to read one book and like it and then to read a book about a sister of that person and for her to be exactly the same like that that's no good at all that's not going to do what I love as well is that they're not it's not just that they're very different to each other it's that they're different in reaction to each other the way normal siblings are yes yes yeah you see that was very important to me because even in the the bad times with my family because it wasn't too long since I was out of rehab for um for alcoholism um but like I only got a certain amount of sympathy from my siblings, you know, and then they were like, ah, feck this. I want the spotlight to be on me now. <laughs> so like, I knew that like, even though people love you, they're still going to be themselves. And, you know, and I suppose even though you love people, you mightn't always like them. And I thought if I'm going to write a book about believable people, it can't all be warm hugs and hand holding and I you know I, I I hear you and I get you and everything because life is not like that life is about everybody racing into the television room and shoving each other off the couch to get the best spot you know that's how you show someone you love them you know you, you shove them off the couch and onto the floor that's true love 
That is a, a lovely soundbite to end on, Marion. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. I really appreciate it's a it. pleasure. Honestly, I am so honoured, Caroline. I really am. And thank you so much for this. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for writing such lovely sisters. <laughs> You're an angel. Thank you. Thanks to Marion Keyes for talking and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Sentimental Garbage where I chat to Aisha Malik about Bridget Jones' Diary by Helen Fielding. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.